Fresh Economic Thinking podcast, new ideas and analysis with Dr. Cameron Murray and Jonathan Gadir. Do you want to uh, start by telling everyone who's giving us a go um, why you are doing this podcast? So I think it's worth knowing that I've been blogging now. I looked it up uh, for over 14 years. Uh, so the question, I guess, is an extension of why have I been doing that? And I think the answer is because fresh ideas and thinking differently is difficult. Uh, we are just biological beings after all. There's no reason we should have evolved to think logically. And so if you are interested in, in grasping towards the truth of the world, you need to make a big effort. You need to practice your thinking. You need to test your ideas. You need to um, dig for those finer details that will show uh, where your thinking uh, is contradictory. And so I think I want to share that process of thinking out loud and having those conversations uh, on this podcast. That's what I do on the, the blog and now the Substack. And so I'm hoping that people will come with me um, on that journey. Um, and I think one of the big lessons I've had already is the ability to think beyond what my social group or my, my networks think and think for myself. So maybe we should explore just some quick basics uh, since this is the first episode. Quick basics about who is Dr. Cameron Murray, quick bio, where you grew up, what you studied, that kind of thing. I grew up in Brisbane. Um, both my parents were teachers. Uh, I ended up working in the government and I learned a lot about the, the bureaucracy and the political constraints we face. Uh, and a funny thing was that I, I was so frustrated in those roles that I felt like I should do something useful with my life instead of wasting all day um, being a political pawn in many ways. So I decided to become a medical doctor. And I thought, well, at least I could help people one-on-one -on, -one on a daily basis. Wow. So, Medical doctor. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was sick of economics. This was um, 2012 by now, I think. Uh, I was very disillusioned with the whole process. And uh, so I studied for the GAMSTAT, the entrance test for medical school, and uh, did quite well and was accepted to study medicine at UQ uh, in a few months' time. Uh, but two things happened, which sort of led me from there to here. Uh, first, I, I followed a, a doctor friend around the hospital for their shift to see what it was really like. And in a way, uh, the reality hit me that doctors are in many ways human plumbers, human mechanics. They're part of a, a big system. It's not such a creative endeavor looking for new treatments. There's a lot of day-to-day -day application of things that are known. It's not always about being creative and trying new things. Uh, that's, that's sort of not the whole job. That's a very specialist part of medicine. And then the second thing that happened is I had a conversation with Paul Friders, who was then a professor at UQ, about my frustrations with economics and, you know, the government departments. And we decided that if I did a PhD uh, in economics, I could do some research on some of those issues. And that led me down a new path of learning about grey corruption and ultimately writing the book Game of Mates in 2017. And so now I work at the Henry Haller and Trust at the University of Sydney as a research fellow doing research on housing markets, specifically focusing on planning and housing supply. And in that area too, there's a lot of myths and lies and 
uh, vested interests, and I'm sure we'll get to some of them, but that's uh, what I do day to day these days. Mm. And so um, let me just uh, ask you some questions now so as a background for our, our listeners. Now, what's your background, Jonathan, and what sparked your interest in economics and policy? I don't know. I've always been, con- uh, what's the word, contrarian. I just I have this memory when I was thinking about what I'd say in this segment. I remembered this funny time when I was in primary school and there was this new education minister, I think it's 1988, a new coalition government, and this new education minister whose name I think was Dr. Metherall, who, whose name became kind of like it was like the devil because he was pushing through these cuts to education and there was a huge campaign in New South Wales but from the teachers, you know, against him and there were protests and um, I just remember thinking something along the lines of, well, I don't have that much fun at school. I don't like my teachers that much. So what's so bad about this Dr. <laughs> Metherall who wants to change something in the school system? And so I thought it was kind of cool to go around saying that I'm a supporter of Dr. Metherall. I remember I remember kind of thinking it was kind of interesting to say something different than what everyone else around me was saying. But anyway. It's funny I, you say that. Yeah. Um, I feel like that's uh, probably a common theme uh, we both have, and it's it's in many ways my approach to research is just ask the basic question that a child would ask uh, about a situation. Um, I really feel like children, they don't have that social conditioning to avoid asking straightforward questions like that. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, if you don't like school and this person wants to change things, well, exactly the point. You know, you're you're really getting to the heart of the, the question there, and I, I like that that attitude. Yeah. So you were saying so. So what about yeah. Um, so uh, what yeah, that uni. Your interests. Yeah. Well, at uni, I just uh, one of my favorite thinker was not a favorite of any of my lecturers, neither left ones nor the right-wing ones, his name's Emmanuel Wallerstein. I still think he's the most influential thinker on, on me. Emmanuel Wallerstein's a grand old man. Well, he's, he's dead now, but he's he was the grand old man of sort of New York-based sort of mm-hmm. Marxist political economy. He authored this magisterial history of global capitalism, uh, the modern world system, volumes one through four, no less, um, wow. beginning in the this yeah, what happened in, in a weird corner of Northwestern Europe in the 16th century where a strange thing happened. You know, the merchants went from the bottom of the social hierarchy to the top. Anyway, so he, he Emmanuel Wallerstein, was a very influential thinker on me and he's sort of considered very influential in Marxist third-worldy developmental circles. All right, so to the show, um, I guess the way we're going to do this is first segment is going to be Barney of the Week. For those who don't know, Barney is British slang for a quarrel, especially a noisy one, reading that out of the dictionary. Um, and then after Barney of the Week, we'll do we'll delve into a topic uh, in a sort of detailed way, something you've written about in your substack. The Barney of the Week, if we get into that, tell me, what is it? What noisy dispute have you been engaged in? Uh, this week's Barney is about the zoning tax. Uh, as I said, my research now is on um, housing supply, and there is this uh, method out there in ac- academic research of uh, estimating how much of the price of a, a housing lot, plot of land, is caused by some kind of planning regulation. And uh, 
the Reserve Bank, a couple of uh, people there, Peter Chulp and his co-author in 2017, um, got a lot of press about this method. And as someone who's worked in property development, been around property a long time, it just made no sense to me at all. And I've picked it apart many times and said, yeah, it makes no sense. This week, uh, uh, an American academic, Brian Kaplan, who's a bit of a libertarian, is writing a book about housing called something like Build Baby Build. That's the latest thing to say uh, in, you know, in so certain social circles. Uh, if you ever want to talk about housing, you just go, oh, I've got to build more. It's supply. And you've signaled your credibility as a, an informed blue check on Twitter. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the problem, of course, is that uh, he, Brian Kaplan's writing this book and he's put up on his sub stack, a, stack a, a criticism of my criticism of this method. And so we're back to where we were uh, years ago arguing about this. Now, why is this important? Uh, well, if supply really is having huge price effects, and let me give you an example. When the method was applied to some Sydney data, when the um, average price of a new housing lot for a detached home in Sydney was 765000 the estimate says, well, 64% of that, or 490000 was just money you're blowing because the of council regulations on, on housing. Okay, so yeah. if you got rid of them, that $765,000 lot would only cost you $275,000. Mm -hmm. yep. that's, the, that's the argument. And if that were true, then uh, we could crash the property market tomorrow by <laughs> announcing a change in planning laws. And we could wipe out 4 or $5 trillion of value from the Australian property market okay. with the stroke of a pen. Mm -hmm. Now, when that method first came out in 2001, it was at a conference and it was the discussant for that research said, well, this method is too ditzy to go anywhere, uh, but it's become super popular and everyone pretends it's true. And, and so we end up with these massive, massive sort of estimates out there. And, and I see that being a huge distraction of what you can do in the housing market um, to make housing more affordable for renters and new buyers. Now I'll, I'll try and explain the method because it's, it's kind of weird. And basically what it says is if large housing lots are priced at a lower price per square meter than smaller ones. So let me give you an example. If a 400 square meter housing lot was priced at 400,000, uh, if a 700 square meter housing lot in that neighborhood, empty and vacant lot was priced at less than 700,000, which would be the 1,000 square meter for all that so say it was 600,000, this method would say, aha, because you can buy bigger lots at a cheaper price than smaller lots per square meter, yeah. uh, there is a zoning tax because what you should be able to do is take, for example, three of those big lots and chop them up into five smaller lots and make money. And okay. if you're not doing that, it must be because zoning rules aren't letting you subdivide the lots. Okay. And of course, the problem here is that you can't just chop up housing lots uh, because all housing lots are at different locations. And once you put a house on it, it's very expensive um, to reorganize them. Uh, and this was the exact critique that came out literally 30 minutes after this method was first presented at the conference. Someone came out and said, this doesn't really make sense. Maybe it captures something, but you know, probably don't use it. And like many things in 
academia, people just stopped caring. They became unserious and just kept picking up things that gave them the answer they wanted for when they did their research and they cited it and so on and, and so forth. So we're in this weird um, situation where there's a big social pressure to conform to this idea that it's nasty uh, white people in their expensive detached housing who lobby councils not to let apartments get built in their neighborhood uh -huh. who are causing the global housing boom. Oh, okay. Um, I didn't so know there were people saying that. I mean, it may well be that it's yeah. a bad thing that white people in, have big houses and uh, they, they're nimby-ish and it's, it's really annoying. But um, I didn't realize that there was a whole argument out there that it's actually the, like this is actually the cause of expensive housing. Yeah, so it's become a very, you know, um, politically embedded thing. That's why I'm, I'm going on about how it's, you know, rich white people in detached housing. This is just uh, the attitude that you have to uh, express to be part of the cool club uh, when it comes to just debates about housing. In, okay. And that's where and I find uh, this, you know, I get into all these arguments with people who are unserious about what the method actually does. Uh -huh. and the inconsistencies behind it. So that's, and, and, and I'm still arguing the, about it five years later. Okay, and, and forgive the sort of lack of uh, knowledge, but like who are the people, like are the people who are arguing against you, are they kind of p partisan political motivated or just generally kind of lefty progressives? Like who are they? Oh, that's really interesting that you say that. Um, mostly it's, um, mostly it's uh, sort of libertarian right-wing people. So Peter Chulps at the Center for Independent Studies. The oh, because they're anti-regulation. I get it. Okay. They're anti-regulation. But what, what I find interesting is that many on the left have essentially picked up the same, what 40 years ago would have been crazy right-wing, you know, propaganda funded by vested interests. And they've just picked it up and go, yeah, yeah, no, that's also true. Yeah. Because it's got this sort of element of, uh, inequality and race and all these other elements mixed in, you now get to go, oh, yeah, well, that regulation is racist or whatever. Um, and it's keeping poor people out of expensive neighbourhoods. And so there's this other group now that's jumped on board. And I'm just the lonely guy there saying, I don't care who's right or wrong. This method just doesn't do anything that you think it does. Please stop using it. And, yeah. and no one seems... No one seems to care. Okay. And if anyone wants that. to join in the Barney, they can look up your Twitter. Of course. <laughs> All right. So, so it's, it's an ongoing battle, that one. Yeah. Okay, good. So that's our Barney of the week. Now on to our topic of the week, which is going to be like the most juicy one that will get people coming back, tuning in for more of our episodes. So <laughs> what is it? Superannuation. Of course it is. Um, you wrote, you got an article in the Herald in the lead up to the election on this, didn't you? I did. I didn't like the headline. I think if you're out there and you're listening to this podcast, be aware that the authors do not write the headlines for newspaper articles. Oh, what was the headline uh, again? The headline was something to do with um, the coalition's proposal to use super for housing. Um, but the article was about how I went from a super fan to super's biggest critic. We've just had a strange uh, federal election in Australia where the left has uh, been pushing for more superannuation, that is more compulsory savings for young people, uh, where they, instead of getting their wages paid in their bank account, they have to put their wages, give them to a, a fund manager to go and 
purchase financial assets on their behalf. And where the right wing was saying, actually, you know, uh, if people had their own wages that they earned instead of buying financial assets, bought property assets and lived in their own home, that would be better. Um, so it was, it was very, very, very uh, bizarre. And uh, so I guess what's interesting about this topic is if you had asked me um, a decade ago, is superannuation good? I probably would have you know, gone with my biases being brought up in a household where thriftiness was rewarded or, 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 or nurtured, yeah. I would have thought, you know, people are idiots, got to force them to save money or they'll never have any money. I think that's a gut feeling a lot of people have, right? Yeah, that's and, me. That's me. I would have thought that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and so I was a bit like that. And And the problem I had is every time I kept taking a step further in my research, okay, well, you know, why is having super good? What's bad about the age pension? What's bad about taxes or what's good about that system? And what does super actually do? Like we think about, oh, you get the magic of compound growth. I'm like, well, okay, but doesn't the tax system automatically get the magic of compound growth across the economy also to make the age pension system sustainable? Like um, where is where is the magic pudding here of super? And so a few things... I learned over time uh, really changed my view. And, and I can tell you where I got to, uh, where I got to in 2019 was I wrote a report called Scrap Superannuation. And I proposed that the best thing to do for economic efficiency and equality in Australia is to uh, stop putting money in super, put it in people's bank accounts when they earn their wage and let people take money out of their super to spend however they like at a certain annual cap each year until there is no super system left. That's what I proposed. So how, what, did I, what did I learn in the meantime um, to get from there to here? Yeah. And I, I guess, yeah. I was going to say. Where, where do but, you fall on it? So I was going to say, I, the more I think about it, the more I think that it's dodgy, the super is dodgy, but I couldn't put it into look, the standard left line, which I heard on Friendly Geordies, is my, my guilty pleasure uh, podcast listening, um, was people won't save by themselves. Um, it's there to, you know, the super system's there to protect the poor in their retirement, you know. Um, it's there because the the pension is not it's not sustainable like we can't have the government um, you know we can't rely on the fact that the government's going to have enough money in the future to pay sort of these enormous numbers of people who are going to need it uh, a really decent pension and then I then I start interrogating myself and I think well that's not a structure of argument you find left-wing progressive people making on any other issue they don't go around saying yep, well we can't expect in the future the government to pay this incredibly um you know growing amount of money for health or this you know this or insatiable demand for education yeah. yeah and it's just growing and growing and we just can't expect the government to, to and i and i wonder oh yeah you know um I, I don't say that about anything else but i say that about 
pensions. Like, and then I think, why am I thinking that about pensions? Is it because Paul <laughs> Keating said it once and he's a really interesting guy and I kind of think I should agree with him because he sounds smart? Maybe that's what it is. Because um, I remember yeah. Keating like shoving that down everyone's throat. Look, I think Paul Keating's a key figure here and, and the leftists sort of backed themselves into a corner by, by sort of worshipping him uh, in many ways. And, and so there's a few things that, that tripped me up and, and sort of made me question my you know, the gut reaction that I think everyone has is that, you know, savings is, is noble and good and prudent. And, and, you know, I think there's a deep social conviction that saving is somehow noble, but, you know, retirement and saving are different things for starters, but let me, let me give you a few things that I learned that made me really question things. Well, firstly, uh, the fees on, and the, and the tax breaks to superannuation. So it's something like, so compared to the age pension, uh, we, we pay $45 billion per year in age pensions. The tax breaks to superannuation are, are nearly $40 billion mm-hmm. already mm-hmm. each year. So they nearly are enough to cover the age pension. And the fees that we pay to superannuation fund managers are, are around $30 billion. So just the fees and the missed taxes uh, 75% more than the whole age pension is already. And yet we somehow think this system is rescuing the expense of the age pension when the system is already creeping up to twice as expensive. The other thing that I learned in the process was that for the bottom 25 to 30% of households, when they age onto the age pension, they get a pay rise. Yeah. They get more money when they get the age pension than they had beforehand. Yet the day before that birthday, the attitude is, oh, you know, you don't know what to do with your money. You need less money now. All this sort of stuff. Go and buy BHP shares. You don't have anything to do with your money. And the day after, it's like, oh, we must give you more money. You're very, very needy. You've had a birthday. Here, here's $30,000 tax-free each year. Oh, you own a million-dollar house, whatever. You know, okay, so I but here I am, Mr. Mr. Standard Leftist Conventional Wisdom. I'm going to give you the argument. But, but you're assuming that in the future when there's way more people who are retiring and in need of income without working, that the government's going to be able to keep paying a good living pension, yeah. not a pension that means I'm living in a boarding house. Of course they can, right? Because the pension just, you tax some people and you pay others. And this is the thing. The superannuation system does the exact same thing. It compulsorily forces you to go and buy shares off the retiree who's the self, self-funded from their super. They sell you their shares uh, to get them cash. So you essentially give that retired person cash when you pay in your superannuation account because there's a bunch of retirees out there selling the assets to you. Uh, So you're just Mm -hmm. giving them cash anyway. And so a lot of countries, they don't distinguish um, superannuation and and taxes. They say they're just non-tax compulsory payments. They're essentially identical, uh, economically speaking. And they are. They're identical. They're just literally transfers from the young to the old. And so... If there is an aging problem with the pension that we can't afford it, it's also true for the super system that if there's too many old people, there simply won't be enough young people able to make superannuation payments to support those incomes. So so that's just not an argument. 
that stands up to scrutiny. And the fact that the left keeps saying it is, and in the process, $30 billion of, of, of uh, fees to essentially spreadsheet monkeys who trade the same assets with each other with your retirement savings every day, I, you know, it baffles my mind that this is a, a pro-left-wing progressive system. The other thing people don't realize is that half of the payments out of the super system are lump sum payments to people who are, I think you could get your super at 55, but now it's 57. So in that decade before retirement age, because the age pension age is now 67, which I think was a mistake by, again, our left-wing political party increasing the retirement age from 65 to 67. I just don't, I just cannot see how, you know, a 65-year-old who's uh, worked their whole life in a physical job, whose body's, you know, shot to pieces because they've been lugging stuff around construction sites for 45 years, is somehow undeserving of the age pension. Um, I just, I find it completely bizarre. Um, but anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, can I also ask, like, well, say, there's two, th- and maybe you can comment on this from an expert perspective. There's two things that made me sort of, doubt in the back of my mind whether the super system was actually a good one and the, the first thing was i could never ever compare uh, or shop around effectively the way that the fees and the costs and the interests and all that was presented was just just for a normal person just completely made it completely impossible to say okay this super fund over here is better for me than that super fund and i'm changing yeah um, and I thought, mm, there's something odd going on here if it's made so opaque. Um, and the, the second thing is the fact that um, what no, I could never get really a good answer as to what would happen if there was a massive stock market crash just the day before I retired. So could you yeah. comment on those two things? All that happened in 2008. The super system, the value of it fell over 20% in the 2008-9 period. And just remember, this balance is what people say, it's there, it's real, you know. You don't want an unfunded pension. That value is real. I'm like, that value is not real. So, so no what's real. the government's plan if that happens? They just pay the pension. I mean, the pension <laughs> is the insurance system. And, and this was my point earlier. Half the, half the uh, withdrawals from super are lump sum and people just spend it so that as quick as they can to get on the age pension. And all the financial advisors that I talk to say, yeah, take as much super as you can, spend it, and then get on the age pension. And people are using their super to repay their home loans, so they're already using it to buy housing. Self-managed funds are buying housing for investment. Um, we, you know, the last thing we need is for young working families to get less of their money when they're young, poor, low income with children and high expenses so that when they're old and wealthy and have the age pension to fall back on that they can have more money then. Um, so I just find it, uh, it's, it's really bizarre. And, and, um, and there's like very few more issues that are, elicit such certainty and such fervor as, you know, defense of the superannuation system by left-wing uh, yeah. Union union forces, etc. I'll, I'll I'll give you an example. I was at a, a a dinner party with some friends and friends of friends, and a couple of years ago, when I was writing this report in 2019, and I asked them, you know, they they worked for a union, and I said, what do you what do you really think about super? What's your 
what do you really think? Is it good or bad? And they said, they, they looked up like they were thinking of an answer and they said, hmm, what's our view again? And I said, no, no, what's your view? What do you really think? Not what does the union say? What about, what's my you know, talking point? Mm. Have you really reflected on, is it good for you? Would you like more money now? Like, cause that's the alternative. There's this sort of, in many ways, uh, a hidden or, uh, an implication that the left wants that it's somehow free money that business owners are paying to you. Yeah. That without super, you wouldn't have got that money. It would have just been profits. And I say, okay, if that's true, we'll keep the super system, but every month you can withdraw $5,000. Mm. So the, the, the business owners still have to pay it. You're not going to lose it. You can just spend it however you like. You know, they're like, oh, 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 oh. Well, I'm like, well, if it's free money, why don't we just make it bigger? And then as a bonus, we'll let you spend it today. It's for, what, What's better than free money in the future? Free money today. And then you know, it blows their minds because, you know, they're just unserious. It's not about, is it a good system? Is it fair? Does it work? It's about what's my politics? What's my tribe say? What's the appropriate thing I should say? And it's just, this is so common in, in so many areas and no doubt it will, it will come up again. So how, what's your view now? Have you obviously started like I did, uh, Jono, sort of having yeah. that instinct for saving Yeah. and a few things changed. Are you all the way to um, scrap the whole system? Well, I guess I admit a lot of it was being nudged into thinking more carefully about it by reading uh, stuff by you. Um, but also like there are all sorts of, let's say, non-economic let's just call them irrational cultural prejudices cultural practices around money yeah when and how and in what circumstances it's appropriate to spend mm -hmm. versus it's you know where it's not where it's deemed to be a bad thing so someone once told me an economically trained friend once told me you should be salary sacrificing as much as you can into super for tax reasons um yeah, you, wow, okay. you'll say you know you won't you'll and, and but, but then I was thinking to myself, well, what if I need the money now to spend on things that I like to do now, like travel and, um, you know, maybe if I have kids or whatever. And the, the implication behind his advice was that it's super, super important, more important than anything else to be taxed yeah. less. What do you think? No, that's the, oh, I, I'm totally with you on that. Because I, I remember having young kids at daycare and being a student and um, just thinking, oh, my God, like, why, when else am I going to need money but now? And now I have two teenagers at school and the money just drips through your fingers. And the question is, well, I'm, you know, I'm only going to be richer than I am now in the future assuming all goes well, why would I want more money then and less now? Um, and, and your point about the cultural norms about what's good to spend money on, I think that is that informs a lot of the welfare debate as well. Like, oh, yeah. I, you know, can't, yeah, I think it's that same thing. Like, um, you know, what people spend money on, everyone's got an opinion about what others should spend their money on. And I just... I don't know how to uh, sidestep that when it comes to policy questions like this. So, for example, we've got the left raging about the Inju card. You've heard about this um, this uh, card that welfare recipients are meant to use, so they get paid into this sort of 
um, debit card and that card won't work at Bottolo's um, or, you know, at the casino or whatever the case may be. And so you're essentially directing the way welfare recipients can spend money. And the left comes out and says, that's terrible. And they're right. Like, if that's the case, we should pay our politicians on one of these cards because we would not want our people in these positions of power just drinking and gambling all the time. Yeah, money <laughs> yeah that exactly. Them, right? yeah. Yeah. So the point is completely valid. Now, if you go, uh, you know, it's probably not a good idea for um, Stevie there uh, and his wife, Jane, who are 22 years old, who've just had twins and he works as a labourer. And now what you're doing is saying, Sorry, Steve, I know you got those twins and stuff, but the best thing for you to do is to pay this guy uh, your money and he's going to go and speculate on Tesla shares uh, and commodities for you and buy some treasury bonds because that's what you really need. I'm like, well, what's the difference here? What's the difference? Clearly, that's not what this guy needs. He probably needs a drink <laughs> on a Friday <laughs> afternoon <laughs> after laboring all day and he's got twins like... I just don't see why that's different. And it's just this cultural thing of, oh, we know what's best for other people to spend their money on. It's, it's kind of and, weird. And, but there's also a denial, denial by people that, hey, it's going to speculate on the stock market. That, that's like, that's not, it's not sitting there in a vault waiting for you to hit them the, the, age, the right age. It might not be there. Um, yeah. That's very... Yeah, people don't, people don't get that. And, and the weird thing, and this is... Um, this is what bugs me most of all. Hmm. The OECD, the World Bank, all these economic institutions, they buy all this. They, they publish and ec economic professors spend a career saying, you know what's worth, you know, an they call it an unfunded uh, pension system where you just tax people and give old people money. And they go, oh, you can't have unfunded pensions. You need fully funded pensions or your country's going to go broke. I'm like, have, have you even read the economics textbooks? Like you got, you're just contradicting yourselves. If the money's there to be taxed, the money's there. Like it's, it's not. What do you like, mean? Um, it's contradicting. Do you mean like that's how everything is paid for? Like, I'm, yeah, that's how everything's paid for. It's by transferring resources to the old people when they spend them. It's not. So there's this weird thing in economics where we talk about real resources. And so the idea is if we spend less today, we can have more in the future. Because instead of spending on food or clothing or things that deteriorate real quick, we can build bridges or do other things that last a long time and we can consume those things in the future. Um, and so in an economic world, people will conflate two things. They'll go, oh, super is savings, therefore it's giving us more in the future. But it's not. It's swapping who owns a piece of paper that says I own Tesla shares or BHP or this treasury bond, right? Um, and... What would really provide more stuff in the future is if you stockpiled, oh, here's a car. I'm going to buy it today, but I'm not going to drive it. I'm going to save that for my retirement, put it in the garage. And here's a suitcase full of clothes and I'm going to buy today. I'm going to stockpile them and put it in my garage. And here's some canned food. I put it in my garage. That is what um, the model that we often use when we tell ourselves that saving now provides us more goods in the future. What they mean is, we produce an item and we don't consume it today. We stockpile it for the future. And therefore, when we retire, we have all this stuff. And that's kind of weird uh, for two reasons. One, that's not what the super system does. And two, if you had more money today, you would have a car and a house and better clothes and stuff that would last you when you retire. 
that's one of the reasons people don't spend much when they retire because they have stockpiled all the household furniture, the car, all those things. So their expenditure is very, very low when they retire. But if we don't have the money now, we can't do as much of that. So the, you know, maybe we'll talk more about this weird sort of economic analysis that, that we traditionally use talking about real goods and services, um, mm-hmm. not financial assets. But that's just one of those mysteries where the, the OECD will say that this is a funded pension as if the things that retirees are going to consume are, are being stockpiled somewhere in sheds rather than it just being a change of ownership of assets that are listed on a computer somewhere. Okay. And, and they don't care that it it's contradicts their sort of uh, view. Well, that's great for a first episode. And uh, I will um, put some links in the show notes and we'll make that a habit. And um, I'll also put email address for the pod and, you know, your Twitter and my Twitter and invite people to suggest things they want discussed. All right. Great to chat. Let's do it again soon.